Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. This is a horror podcast, so we're going to be talking about horror things. Go figure. But yeah, that could involve sensitive subjects such as child abuse, rape, F-bombs, uh, bad Who things. Who knows? So we got to do this disclaimer just in case. You don't not, let that go away. Yeah. What are, you, what are you doing here? Go away. It's over. Go home. <laughs> go home. <laughs> uh, let's see. What do we have coming up, Steve? Well, we've still got like 10, 12 people on the calendar because people keep getting added. So uh, not going to go through that. But um, I think a director, an actor, mostly authors right now for our stuff that's going on. So Chris's webcomic Pieces is at piecesofflesh.com. It is a horror-themed webcomic about a clan of uh, not necrotic, uh, necromantic cannibals. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. My book, A Guide to the Recovery Toolbox, is available all kinds of different places. If you're starting into recovery, that's a, a good field resource guide. It's not really like a self-help book in the, the normal sense. It's it's meant as a, a, a field guide to introduce you to about 80 of the tools that I learned through 12-step and therapy and stuff like that basically gets you up to speed on a lot of the phrases that you'll hear so that you can start learning what you need to learn a lot faster. Patreon. We are pushing for supporters. Uh, the lowest entry level is $2 a month. We release two episodes a month. So that's like a dollar per episode. It's a good deal. That's uh, yeah. I mean, you can't even buy a pack of gum for a dollar anymore. <laughs> Mainly what we want to do right now is, uh, you know, if we can hire somebody to help us with the uh, editing, I mean, editing, can take six, 10 hours for some episodes. And that's a lot of time. We'd rather produce more content. So I think that's good enough for now. Um, Today's guest, Mr. Brian Keen, author. Thank you for joining us. Uh, You, we talked earlier about this. uh, The things you're probably best known that the audience would know you for are three different series. You've got the rising earthworm gods and the lost level. And I'm aware you also have a podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I've written, Oh, what? Almost 60 books at this point. <laughs> nice. Plus, you know, various comic books from Marvel and DC and others um, mm. and several podcasts over the years. So oh, wow. it, it's neat. I'm at the point where people know me for different things and, mm. you know, they'll they'll come to the signing and the adult who's been reading me since high school knows me for something. And their kid who is maybe 12 or 13 or 14 knows me for something completely different. So that's kind of <laughs> no, that's good. Keeps it spread yeah. out that way. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Uh, I know we talked a little bit about the, uh, the gist of what we do here. Basically we break it into like four segments. It's uh, we talk about your childhood, teenage years and uh, adulthood about what you were a fan of more than uh, your body of work. And then at the end, we see if we can identify any common themes that have cropped up and see if it says anything to, uh, you know, speaks to something personal that uh, you get out of horror. And the goal is, you know, obviously short term, anybody who listens to this, who's a fan of your work can potentially get to know you a little bit better. And long term, if we do this with enough people, maybe we might start seeing some trends that tell us something interesting about the horror community as a whole. But that said, it's not meant to be a therapy session. So if there's any question you don't want to answer, you just say pass and we'll move on. Right. But um, starting with childhood, what are some of the earliest memories of scary things? My very first, the the earliest scary thing and the thing that put me on my path as a creator. Uh, it was the 
the comic books of the 1970s. Um, okay. You uh, know, DC Comics had a lot of great horror titles like Ghosts and Weird War and House of Secrets, House of Mystery. Uh, but Marvel had some amazing stuff too, particularly uh, what Steve Gerber was doing with titles like The Man Thing and uh, The Defenders. You know, Defenders was ostensibly a superhero book, but having Doctor Strange as the team leader, 90% of the, the threats they faced were supernatural or monsters or the occult. So, you know, I was six, seven, eight years old, just devouring that stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I have a distinct memory of of being eight years old and, and reading an issue of the Defenders. And what I would do is I would get a dictionary out and look up the words I didn't know. <laughs> Right. And in doing that, I, I noticed the credit box on the front page down at the bottom, and it said written by, and it, it, it clicked in my head. This is a, an adult job. You, you can do this as an adult. You can make up these, these stories. People can and, pay you for this? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I knew right then and there this was what I wanted to do. Never in a million years did I think I'd be doing it. Mm. Uh, but, you know. It, to that level. Yeah. You know, and then after comics, uh, of course, came fiction. Um, like everyone else my age, I discovered Stephen King early on. I think for me, it was uh, Night Shift was the first thing I read, followed quickly by Salem's Lot and The Stand. Mm. And, you know, from Steve, it led me to others who were prominent at the time, F. Paul Wilson and Robert R. McCammon and Dean Koontz, of course, and then working my way back through who came before them. Ramsey Campbell, Brian Lumley, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, Richard Matheson, Robert Block. So, you know, by by my teenage years, I was I was well steeped in horror fiction, horror films. Uh, you know, movies were a little tougher to come by. You had to rely on whatever television, your, yeah, yeah, whatever your local TV host was showing on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. But by the time I was in high school, video stores were a thing. So, you know, then I got to start seeing a lot of cool stuff. Hmm. How old were you when you read The Stand? It's a pretty long one. Uh, first time I read The Stand, I think I was 11. Um, and I've reread it every year since then. Um, <laughs> in fact... Uh, Starting on January 1st and ending on <laughs> June 2nd. No, you know, I blow through it in about a month now. But what's yeah. what's interesting and, and what, I, what I've shared with folks is it's kind of like the Bible. My my grandmother is 98 years old, reads her Bible every day. She's been reading it her whole life, and she swears there are still things she discovers every time, right? Mm. The stand is like that for me. Every time I read it, there are still new angles that I pick up on or, or new things I didn't notice before. In fact, uh, several years ago, I was in a pretty bad accident. I got burned third-degree burns on my arm and second-degree on my face and head. And I was in the burn ward for a couple of weeks. And uh, my wife, you know, she said, what can I bring you? And I, and I said, the stand. Uh, yeah, bring me the stand. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, let's see. So it's kind of funny when you mentioned the DC and Marvel comics. Uh, I also grew up reading comics. My I had some relatives that moved away, and when they did that, my older cousins had left me their comic book collection. So I spent a lot of time pouring over those. Um, I was surprised you didn't bring up uh, either. I think it was what strange tales or um, the witching hour. 
Witching Hour, I loved Witching Hour. Uh, in fact, uh, that was the first horror comic that genuinely scared me. There's, I don't remember the issue number, but the the cover has a skeleton driving a bus, and these parents are sending their kid off to summer camp. And and mm-hmm. the story itself, the summer camp was run by the satanic cult. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I I remember that just scared the crap out of me as a kid. It's funny because uh, that reminds me of a scene in Chris's webcomic. Actually, <laughs> 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 they take it over a sim- summer camp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Did you participate in Halloween as a kid? Yeah, I mean, you know, rural Pennsylvania, small town Pennsylvania in the 70s, um, you know, Halloween and and Christmas were sort of, your participation was sort of required. Mm. By fourth grade, I was all in. Uh, I remember I I wanted my mother to help me make a headless horseman costume. So she enlisted my dad to, to cut a piece of wood and we put that on top of my head, painted it black with, you know, red like blood and mm. then wore a like this spandex shirt over top of it. So it looked mm-hmm. like I had no head. Right. So yeah, I was, I was big into Halloween. I liked trick or treating up until around maybe the time I was 10. And then, then I got more into the, the tricking part of it. As just the natural progression, you know? Yeah. And you know, I like, I grew up next door to a, a cemetery. In fact, uh, one of my ah, best friends, nice. his dad was the caretaker. So, you know, we were always, you know, we'd sneak out our windows at night and go run around the cemetery and scare ourselves silly. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I was, I was steeped in it at by 10 or 11. I was addicted to the thrill that comes with the horror genre, you know, um, be it watching phantasm late at night on a Saturday night on a little black and white TV in my room or, or be it that issue of the witching hour that we mentioned, or, some of those stories in King's Night Shift, you know, I I loved the thrill I got from those, and it's it's something. It's a it's a love that has never left me. I I still love feeling that way. Do you remember any particular scenes from Night Shift that uh, gave you that thrill? Probably the the most visceral reaction I had to the stories in Night Shift was uh, the story Graveyard Shift, which is set in a small town similar to the one I grew up in, and. Uh, you know, it's a bunch of guys working shift work at a mill, something I was intimately familiar with. We had one industry in town. That was the paper mill. And my father worked seven days a week shift work there. Uh, so right away, I, I recognized these characters. You know, Marvel and DC Comics, for all their magic and wonder, they were they were usually set in the city, in, in urban environments. Um, you didn't see a lot of small town stuff uh particularly in the superhero comics for some reason everybody in the marvel universe lived in new york city in the 70s Mm. (laughs) because that's where the writers lived yeah but with king it was the world outside my door Mm. so graveyard shift just scared the the crap out of me you know they're they're in this this mill and there's these mutant rats and uh yeah that that really sparked a visceral reaction in little brian (laughs) What about uh, Phantasm? Phantasm, absolutely. I've I've told Don Coscarelli uh, this. I've shared this with him. Um, Phantasm hit me at the perfect time. I was the same age as the protagonist, Michael. I had oh, the cool. same jeans jacket. I had the same dirt bike. I didn't have an older brother, but there was an older kid in the neighborhood who I idolized, who drove that kind of car. 
I was and, about to say, did you grow up later and drive a bear? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it was Reggie the, that had a bear. The older kid, you know, had one. Um, and you know, like I said, growing up next door to a cemetery, we would play there all the time. And of course, that's where the majority of phantasm takes place is in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that really, really hit me. It's a formative influence. My novel Ghoul which was turned into a terrible movie by mm-hmm. NBC Universal. You you can see Phantasm's influence. I mean that novel wears it on its sleeves, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's one that has always stayed with me and and I love the whole series. Um, you know, I I know there's a lot of crap out there on the internet about the the fifth and final movie. Well, you know, for the budget they had for what was ostensibly supposed to originally be a web series, I thought they did a great job and I think story wise, it's it's a beautiful ending. I I'm not I ashamed it. to it. Yeah, you know, I like the ambiguity at the end. A lot yeah, of people I, are pissed off about that, but no, it, it adds a whole new uh, layer to it. Exactly. You know, I I I wept at the end of that. I rarely weep at movies. You know, wow. Big Fish, uh, Saving Private Ryan. There's a couple, but yeah, Phantasm Five, Ravager. I I wept at the end. Hmm. Yeah. Two of the things that you've mentioned here, Phantasm and uh, Night Shift. There's a lot of um, identification shall we say oh yeah dr strange i'm thinking that's a bit of a stretch to say identification well am i missing something he wasn't my favorite defender i mean he was the leader of the defenders but my favorite was the hulk okay um and later on when he joined the team damian hellstrom the son of satan okay i really dug that character and you know he was easily of the defenders lineup particularly uh, when J.M.D. Mateus took over as writer, he he was the horror character, you know, the mm-hmm. son of Satan. You know, he he's literally supposed to be the Antichrist. He's supposed to be Damien Thorne. But instead of conquering the planet, he decides he's going to become a superhero and, and work against his father's wishes. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I liked his uh, his rebellious nature, I guess, particularly as a teenager. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, now that we're talking about and I'm thinking about it, as a teenager, the comic characters I was most attracted to were the ones who weren't necessarily in New York City and who weren't necessarily fighting these global threats. They were fighting for the little people. Uh, Swamp Thing, you know, during Alan Moore's run. Uh, Daredevil. Now, you could say, yeah, Daredevil's in New York City, but he's down in Hell's Kitchen. Right. Fighting for the little people. Um, you know, it, so there was, there was definitely a lot of that. So we've already uncovered one thing here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if it continues. Because, you know, that's the interesting thing about these calls is sometimes you you go in one direction and you think you got something. And then it turns out later that there's like four other things and you got to go, okay, what's what are we looking at here? Yep. So your next door neighbor uh, who lived in the cemetery one potential uh was he also a hand a hand fan of horror or no <laughs> or did you have anybody else in the family or friends group who were not in the family uh i had a, a buddy of mine um who was a big horror fan so you know we would swap stephen king books and f paul wilson books and and he wasn't so much in the comics that was more my forte but mm-hmm. you know we would we would trade off stuff most of the kids were into horror movies um so, you know, I did have that in common with everybody. But okay. as far as reading, 
other than that one buddy I mentioned, I was, I was pretty much alone in that regard. Most okay. of my friends were into sports and collecting baseball cards. They thought it was weird that I would collect these comic books. Mm -hmm. You know, as we got older, they continued being into sports and hunting. Uh, my old man took me hunting and, you know, I brought along a stack of comic books because mm -hmm. I, you know, I've bored, bored. Exactly. You got to do something out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, summer vacation, it was common for me to head out into the woods or, you know, head to a clubhouse and just sit there and read all day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have a, a beautiful memory being 11 years old and working my way through the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings one summer in the middle of the woods. And it, it was like, I was reading those books in middle earth. Nice. You know what I mean? That may have answered one of our future questions that we'll get to here in a second. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask two questions sort of as a pair. I'll start with the negative one first so we can end on the positive. Do you remember the first person that you hurt? Yes. Do you want to talk about it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause he and I have talked about it as adults. There was a period in, I guess it was fifth or sixth grade where I was getting bullied pretty hard. And uh, it was mainly by this one dude, but he had three or four friends who would engage in it as well. And after I got punched in the mouth and had my braces poke through my bottom lip Ooh. and spent the day at the hospital, I decided that's enough of this shit. So I decided I was going to start getting even with him. And the first thing I did is, uh, you know, my first day back at school, the principal calls me and the main bully to the office and the main bully starts crying while we're waiting. And I'm, you know, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Oh, my dad will kill me. You have to say you started the fight. And I said, all right, well, then you got to give me your comic book collection. <laughs> so, <Nice. laughs> so I went in, I told the principal, yeah, I started the fight. Principal clearly didn't believe me. <laughs> uh, you know, but what could he do? We got out and I uh, told the bully, I said, I want that comic collection or I'm going to go yeah. in and tell him the truth. The next day he showed up with his father, <laughs> a box of comic books. Yeah. But the second kid, it was one of these guys who hung around with him. And in art class, I went up behind him. Now keep in mind, it's fifth grade folks. And I, I feel guilty enough. I don't need you tearing me apart on Twitter sure, sure. about this, but I went up behind him and I boxed his ears. Mm. And what I didn't understand in fifth grade is you can burst somebody's eardrums doing mm. that. Mm -hmm. So this bully is immediately reduced to tears and I felt terrible. And I ran away from the school and I'll never forget the one teacher, Miss Shorter. She was my English teacher. She got in her car and she came and she tracked me down. Oh, wow. And I apologized to the, the guy as a kid, but we had our, I guess our 25th high school reunion a, a ways back and uh, he was there and, you know, I, I pulled him aside and I, and I, and he'd forgotten about it. He had completely forgotten about it. I had carried that guilt with me, that weight with me all those years. He'd completely forgotten about it. So it was all good, I guess, as they say, but I, I still feel guilty. So yeah, I, re I remember the first person I heard. Do you remember yeah. the first person you helped? Um, yeah, her name was, uh, well, I'm not sure I can use her name on the air. Okay. Um, she likes her privacy, but yeah, she fell and skinned her knee. I think we were in first grade and, uh, I helped her into the, the classroom and, and got the teacher to take care of her. So I, I, and I'm, I'm grinning as I say it, 
<laughs> she was she was one of those little childhood crushes, you know. But <laughs> but yeah, I I I remember I remember helping her. Nice. And you know, that's uh my my wife, author Mary San Giovanni, has pointed out <laughs> what we just discussed there is pretty much my entire life. I have guilt for a lot of the things I've done in the past, but I grew up reading comic books. So I, she, she says, I have this hero complex where I'm, I'm trying to write my ledger, so to speak. Um, Mm. you know, I'm, I'm on the board of directors for a a major charity, a major horror charity scares the care. Uh, I bend over backwards to help people in an industry, sometimes at a detriment to myself and my own mental health. And, uh, she says it's it's all based on those comic books I read as a kid that you know I don't know how not to help people but I I feel guilty at the same time so mm. I don't I don't know if she's right about that or not you guys can decide by the end of this this episode I guess it's kind of funny I uh, feel like sometimes I do the reverse I was I mean I I definitely also have a very strong guilt complex at times too but I also was raised to. How can I say this? My grandmother, my grandfather passed away before I was born, but he was the deacon of our church and my grandmother was the head lector and they both had businesses where they were hairdressers and barbers, which are very dependent on the community for their livelihood. And so my grandmother was very, very, very anal about don't make any waves, don't fight, don't cause a scene, like none of that. And so I was a very good little boy. And so in my case, I feel there have been times in my life where I'm like, you know what? I've got a little karma to burn, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So Chris, you were going to say something a minute ago. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Did you have any scary dreams when you were a kid? Oh yeah. Uh, I've actually written a, a small chat book about this called the triangle of belief. It's uh it's nonfiction. Okay. And I swear we're not going to go into Whitley Strieber territory here, but I used to have a, a recurring dream. You know, I, I, I can't say that I saw gray aliens coming into my room, but I, I did suffer from sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. And in that sleep paralysis, I would get pecked and poked and prodded by these shadowy black chickens. <laughs> Um, now I grew up, well, that's a new twist on the whole sleep paralysis game. I I, I grew up on a farm. Okay. So I was exposed to chickens Mm -hmm. as an adult, had the opportunity to meet one of the researchers who worked on the first actual scientific study of this, this whole alien abduction, sleep paralysis thing, you know, to, to see what the psychological cause was for this, this shared thing that so many people were experiencing. And she she told me that one of the things they discovered early on in the study is that children would often, they're so terrified, they would, they would come up with a, a mask animal mm-hmm. to make the experience seem more normal. Mm-hmm. Owls were reported, different animals. So for growing up on a farm, you know, having chickens, I don't, I don't know, maybe <laughs> um, these, these dreams stopped when I, became an adult and I, I always chalked them up to, they were just, you know, they were night terrors. It was mm-hmm. some weird thing, but it unnerved me that both of my sons experienced similar dreams as children and had, saw similar animals that I did. I can't explain it. Uh, again, we're not going into Whitley Strieber territory. I'm not saying that 
I was abducted by aliens or anything like that. But it was it was something unexplainable. You could say they were nightmares, but to me, they were much more than that. Um, you know, it was maybe a, it all was, the kids in your town were abducted and drugged by a local cult and not aliens, and they had you pecked by chickens in your sleep. That's your web comic, isn't it? <laughs> that's the <laughs> next one I'm gonna write. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I, you not, know, it's it was a. I'm not a new agey crystal guy or anything like that, but I'm I'm convinced it was a it was a glimpse behind the curtain. You know mm-hmm. that there's other things going on in this world that we just can't explain. So anything in real life terrify you as a kid? Oh yeah, um, I had a a deep an abiding loathing of snakes. I still do as an adult. Okay. Indy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this was, this was before Indiana Jones, but yeah. yeah, I, I don't know why I, you know, I, I wasn't startled by one as a young child or anything. I just, I, from birth, I've, I have a somewhere back in the, the primordial lizard part of my brain. I, I have a, uh, not even a fear, just a hatred of snakes. <laughs> okay. Is it a subconscious religious thing? <laughs> Who knows? You know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, actual fears. I was pretty fearless as a kid. I guess the, the one thing I, I, that I did fear was that people wouldn't like me. Mm. Um, so, you know, I was always the class clown. Uh, you know, my, my three main influences in media as a child were Han Solo David Lee Roth and uh, Burt Reynolds character, the bandit from the smoking, the bandit movies. Now you can draw direct lines and get a nice, perfect triangle between those three. So that was the personality I developed early on was, you know, the class clown, the daredevil. That was my only real fear is that people wouldn't like me, that I'd be abandoned. You know, I've, I've thought about that as an adult and I'm not sure where it stemmed from. Uh, My parents, were loving people. There was no chance of divorce. They didn't fight. You know, my dad had some PTSD left over from Vietnam, but he, he worked through that. So I'm, I'm not sure where that fear of abandonment came from, but yeah, it was, it was there. Uh, as an adult, you read. Yeah. As an adult, there's all kinds of things that scare me. Cancer scares me. Alzheimer's scares me. Something happening to my children scares me. What's happening to our country scares me, you know, it, but the ever constant progression of time itself, just taking away the, the, the blocks of life that you only have a finite amount of left. Yeah. See, that doesn't bother me. I, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty happy, pretty content with what I've achieved and where my children are in life. So That's the good. ticking, the ticking clock doesn't bother me, but the world they may inherit after I'm gone and I'm not here to help them. That terrifies me. Yeah. Decay is not uh, pleasant. No. So the one that you probably already answered flipping around that last question of any fears uh, in childhood, like real life fears. The next question would be any, were there any times in your childhood where you felt completely calm or safe or bliss? And that's where I was thinking maybe the Hobbit. And oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, anytime every week. Well, I would do this twice a week. I'd, I'd ride my BMX mongoose bike to the newsstand and get new <laughs> comic books and new paperbacks. And on Sundays, I'd ride my BMX mongoose bike to the flea market and I'd buy old comic books and old paperbacks. And okay. in the aftermath, when I was sitting in the clubhouse or sitting in the woods or sitting in my room reading, 
completely mm-hmm. at peace, complete tranquility, mm-hmm. uh, losing myself in horror fiction and, and other, other genres, of course, as well. But horror was always my, my go-to. Mm-hmm. That's when I felt at peace. Horror made me happy. <laughs> there you go. Show's over. <laughs> so moving into teen years, what were some of the uh, major media that impressed you in your teen years? You know, again, the comics, uh, I think I mentioned earlier in the 70s, Steve Gerber was doing the Defenders by by the 80s. It was J.M.D. Mateus, and, you know, he he kept up the horror theme, but he brought this whole new humanity to it, really fleshing out these characters. And at that point, I you know, I knew I wanted to write, so I really started studying what he was doing uh frank miller on daredevil same thing and fiction you know uh i remember being 17 18 19 i graduated high school at 17 immediately went into the navy and at that point i'm discovering joe r lansdale jack ketchum you know skip inspector david scowl those guys at the time they were they were knocking horror on its head you know even stephen king's stuff was was safe in some regard. And these guys, they weren't playing by the rules. Their horror fiction was not safe. So that really grabbed my attention. You know, Stephen King, I, I loved his stuff. And Steve, if you're listening to this, you know, I, I, you'll know, you'll know what I'm saying. I loved his stuff, but so did my mother. When I finished a Stephen <laughs> King book, mom wanted to borrow it. She wasn't <laughs> borrowing, you know, Skip Inspector's The Light at the End or David Scow's The Kill Riff, though, you know. So movie-wise, as I said, by then video stores were a thing. So it's evil dead Two And all this stuff that never played at the theater in town or that, you know, was R rated at the time you couldn't get in to see it. I, I remember having just a, a huge reaction to evil dead Two, watching it on VHS, you know, laugh out loud, funny mm-hmm. over the top gore oh. and some genuinely scary moments. Yeah, yeah, Raimi's good like that. Yeah, it's a good mixture know, of, of both the the comedy, yet it's not too comedic, where you just you know let down your defenses. Or exactly, whatever. it was a it was this, this balancing act that I don't think he he ever gets the credit for that he deserves. Um, I recognize it. Yeah. I recognize you, Sam Raimi. Please I, be on our show. <laughs> we, we see you, Sam. You are heard. <laughs> but yeah, you know a, a lot of a lot of indie stuff and low budget stuff like that. Um, you know, so you mentioned Skip Inspector, the light at the end. Was there a particular scene in that book that uh, stood out to you? Not that one, but uh, one of their follow-ups, the cleanup, which was basically Charles Bronson's death wish with superpowers. It was mm-hmm. it was M Night Shyamalan's. Uh, what was the one he did with Bruce Willis? Unbreakable. Yes. Yeah, it was Unbreakable years before Unbreakable was ever made. Um, and you know the the guy basically. He's a, he's a vigilante. He's going to clean up the city streets, uh, but he becomes a monster in the process. That one was just, it was so violent. And, and the way they painted that canvas with just words, it, you know, we, we talked about evil dead too. the blood and the violence and the gore. They're there on display. Your brain doesn't have to fill in the details mm-hmm. with fiction, with prose. Your brain is doing all the work. Um, right. I and and Skip Inspector were were brilliant with that. Not to get off on a tangent, but I, I always bring up Survivor by uh, 
my my best friend in the world, JF Gonzalez, who's no longer with us, but Survivor is often held up by critics and historians as like, you know, one of the most extreme horror novels ever written. And it is. But there's a scene in that book uh, where everybody thinks that he described in detail the death of this infant. And he did not. He he breaks the scene, takes you away from it to something else, and then comes back and the infant is dead. And when you point that out to people that, no, he never describes the death of the infant, your brain filled those details mm-hmm. in. They're shocked. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's something that is unique to prose fiction. And as a teenager, I was definitely keying in on that with those guys and Richard Lehman, of course, um, early efforts by Edward Lee. Uh, you know, it was, it was a whole new level of horror fiction. So what I think you're talking about there potentially might start touching on something that does come up in some of these calls, which is that once someone becomes a creator or decides that this is what they want to do for a living, then they start focusing on, and you already mentioned this earlier, that uh, starting to focus on how to do what you do. And there starts to become an interest in the um, the auteur part of it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is good. However, my gut tells me that, that that's a different thing, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah. And so I'm wondering if there was anything in your teenage years that you experienced that was that gut level. I love this or, or I'm afraid of this that didn't relate to the auteur part of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I don't think I had anything like that really. Okay. I mean, not every, not every question is going to land. Yeah. I mean, like, like I remember, I guess the closest I came was, uh, when I was in high school, I got in school detention. These days they would have just kicked me out of school, but back then they'd give you in, in school detention. I had 30 days of in school detention. Oh, wow. So I'd show up at high school and I would have to go sit apart from the rest of the student body. Now, just to clarify for the listening audience, I, all I did was I got caught smoking weed under the bleachers. <laughs> you deviant. <laughs> yeah. But so I had a, a copy of dark forces. It was an anthology by Kirby McCauley. And the very first story in it is the mist by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And I would get all my classwork finished in the first hour. And you know, I still have, six more hours to sit there by myself mm-hmm. and you can do whatever you want. So I wrote the mist out by hand because I wanted to see what it felt like mm. to write the mist. And when I was done, mm-hmm. I started my own novel, which was called Satan's mist. And it was basically the plot mm-hmm. of the mist, but it was in my town. And okay. then I started using everybody I knew as characters in the book. And I, I, immediately felt very guilty about what I was doing to them. And I worried, Oh my God, what if someone found this? They'd think I really wanted this to happen. Um, So I put it aside. Yeah. It, it was never finished. I still have that handwritten manuscript. It'll go into uh, the collection at the university of Pittsburgh. They're collecting all my papers. Mm. Um, So it'll, it'll go in there if people want to read it, But, but I guess that's the closest I ever had to that. Maybe. You know, it was like, oh, I, yeah, I want to be an auteur, but I don't want to do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or was- you wanted to, but you didn't want to get in trouble for it. <laughs> yeah, that might yeah, be yeah, it. Yeah, there's that aspect, <laughs> that too. Yeah, <laughs> no, but that's, that's two really interesting and 
good and powerful uh, writing techniques there. Like not only are you rewriting something, so it's kind of like what teachers always tell you, you know, when you when you bitch about taking notes, like, oh, why do I have to write all these notes? Because writing it helps you memorize it. Exactly. So writing out the full novel like that not only helps you memorize the story, but it helps you memorize the techniques, the prose, the the art of writing in general. And you can kind of, in a way, wear Stephen King's shoes for a moment while you're rewriting this novel. Yep. And, and also, it brings it close to home by bringing in your own personal characters. So it helps you do that whole write-from-life aspect, too. Exactly. And, and you know, I didn't know any of that at the time. Um, yeah. but what I found, You didn't have to. You were just yeah. doing it. <laughs> what I found later is a lot of authors do that at some point. Um, you know, Hunter cool. S. Thompson did it. Uh, Jack Ketchum did it. Gene O'Neill. So, you know, I was just a lower middle class kid from the country. I, I didn't, I didn't know any of that, but I knew that it, I knew I liked the feeling of copying that novella. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Experience. Yeah. So you mentioned in your teen years, you got more into tricking than treating. <laughs> uh, let's see. No particular favorite or least favorite costumes. Uh, I guess you didn't. No, yeah. Just- I mean, by then it was, you know, dress like a ninja so we don't get caught while we're toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> toilet paper ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any scary dreams as a teen? No, not really. Okay. Uh, the sleep paralysis and stuff oh, ended, yeah. you know, in my teenage years. Uh, anything really terrifying happened in real life as a teen? Um, I'm thinking about it. Nothing terrifying. I got my my first taste of mortality. Uh, my grandparents on my father's, father's side both passed. My grandfather, I was pretty close to. He had, he had lived with us for several summers when I was a teenager. He was uh, an ex-Prohibition-era moonshiner from West mm-hmm. Virginia. Wow. Okay. And he was a hellion. I mean, you know, I, I was a bit of a hellion too, but I guess it skips a generation. My dad was a good kid and, and both my sons are good kids, but my grandfather and I were hellions. Um, <laughs> and, and when he passed, I was pretty upset, but I didn't really have the tools to articulate it. Mm. And uh, I didn't articulate it until years later with a novel. And I, I finally got to write about that, you know, fictionalized. So nothing, nothing scary, okay. but definitely, you know, definitely there were some traumatic things and that's one of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Any moments of complete calm or safety or bliss? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, first girlfriend, that childhood sweetheart who I mentioned earlier, you know, as teenagers that becomes something very different. And, mm-hmm. uh, in those moments, particularly, uh, that first kiss outside of a, a YMCA building at like six o'clock in the morning after being up all night. Oh, I'm smiling now thinking about it. And, <laughs> and when my wife listens to this later, she's gonna be like, Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> you in the doghouse now, <laughs> but honey, it was years before I ever yes, met you. Of course. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, that, that was a moment of pure peace. And of, and of course, like I said before, anytime I was reading, uh, was was escapism as well, right? Uh, moving into adult years, uh, favorite media in your adult years? It still comes back to it: comic books, movies, and and especially books. As far as favorites, oh gosh! See now, as, as an adult, we get into what we were talking about earlier. Now you're an auteur. Now you're right. a creator. And what I've learned, 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> at at my level of notoriety, um, if I list anything as a favorite, right, yeah. somebody else is going to say, "Well, why didn't you Lord list mine?" Yeah. yeah. So I'm hesitant to do that. Um, but I read voraciously. Uh, I put out a newsletter every Sunday. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. And I always list in there what I'm reading. Mm. Um, and if I enjoy it, I'll say a few a few good words about it. But I do find that I'll be 56 next month. And I, and I do find that I'm not as enamored with new horror films the way I used to be. Um, yeah. it, it has to be particularly good mm-hmm. to get my attention. Now, there, there are filmmakers like... Uh, Jed Shepard or Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead that, yeah, I, I stand them hard. Anything they put out, you know, I'll watch. Or there's a, an Asian film uh, called the sadness. I don't, I don't know if any of you have seen it. Yes. You know, the, it's basically the cross, the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was sent to a, an interview with the, the filmmaker. He, he listed the cross to the comic book and my novel, the complex, as Ooh. two big influences and, and I really? see it and I'm honored by that. Yeah. I uh, loved, loved that film, but I, I do find when it comes to film these days, I, I tend to, I, I tend to go through shutter and see what's available and then go pick a different genre somewhere else. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sure why that is, yeah. but you know, fiction, I'm, I still heavily read the genre. Of course, part of that is, from a business sense, you, you want to see what your peers are doing. You, you want to see what's going on. Uh, right. But and part of it is still for pleasure. Mm. And, you know, my main hobby these days is rebuilding that comic book collection I had as a kid. So mm. nice. Yeah. The uh, uh, avoidance, shall we say, I think that might probably very possibly could tie into something that we've talked about on the show before. In my case, I related to music. In that, you know, as a kid, there are certain songs that you hear that really hit on a particular emotion. And then it, that song becomes tied to that emotion for you. And then later in life, you hear other songs that relate to that emotion. And they don't have the same impact because, as Chris had said at the time, the seat's taken. You yeah. know, it, you've, you've already got something in that spot. And it's hard for something else to to kick it out of its place. And it's possible that you might be feeling similar things in terms of the horror genre. Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. Going back to the conversation about things that came to mind uh, in your adult years of of what media you liked. Yeah, we understand that there's a lot of stuff and also the politics involved potentially. (laughs) But usually, you know, from a psychological standpoint, and hopefully the listeners would understand this as well, that the first things that come to mind often come to mind for a reason. Yeah. And so let's talk about the sadness. You mentioned that there were things about that that you liked. Can you think of any one thing that really stood out to you? I mean, I liked that it it absolutely pulled no punches. It was not safe. It didn't play by the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I liked just that frenetic pace about it. It's the same thing. You know what? I, I will list one of my peers, Brian Smith. You know, anytime Brian puts a novel out, I immediately stop whatever else I'm reading and I read that. And I read Brian's stuff for the same reason that I like the sadness. Um, he doesn't play by the rules. You know, he, he does not pull his punches. Uh, he and I wrote one novel together, suburban Gothic, and it's the most violent breakneck thing. I think either one of us have ever written 
that it and I, and I wasn't think, adapted into a film, was it? Uh, <laughs> not officially, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there there certainly is a film that seems to borrow heavily from suburban gothic now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely perked my ears up. Richard Bay Jr. is one of my favorite directors yeah. of all of his films. But your description of the book does does not sound like the film. Yeah. Um, a little bit more serious. Yeah, like. but, uh, you know, I, I think the reason the book turned out the way it did is because Brian and I were trying to one up each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. you know, he's, he's a hard, he's a hard one to one up. So yeah, I, I, when it comes to new media these days, I tend to go in horror. I tend to go for stuff that's going to challenge me stuff that I haven't seen before, or, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in it's all been done. What we do now mm-hmm. is we put our own stamp, our own take on it. So I want to, I, I go to, to things that are an original take. You know what I mean? Uh, everybody's done the werewolf, the zombie, the vampire. Let's see your, your new take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll get my attention every time. I combined ghouls and necromancy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, you're right. Everything's, everything has been done at this point. So what you either have to do is put your own flavor on something or maybe do a mashup. Like, oh, I was thinking about this the other day. So hostage kidnap horror situation only it's people at first and then it turns out that people are kidnapping humans for aliens so you have your hostage kidnap situation and alien abduction ah, <laughs> eh? <laughs> i like it see that's a new twist yeah yeah patent pending yes <laughs> it's copyrighted now because this has been recorded Uh, You may have already answered a question that I was going to ask. You mentioned uh, both with the sadness and Brian Smith, the word frenetic, which hadn't come up previously. Is there something that interests you about a frenetic pace? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like I said, I I was, uh, I was a daredevil as a kid Mm. and I, I was, I guess I was also a daredevil most of my adult life. You know, I'm not tooting my horn, but. You know, we, well, we, we talked earlier that, that hero complex that got embedded in me as a kid. I, you know, my, my wife, Mary likes to laugh at me. If the, if the fire siren goes off, I'm usually going to see where the, the fire is in the neighborhood and see if I can help. Mm. I'm the guy running towards the burning building. So I, I guess when it comes to entertainment, it's harder to get my pulse pounding these days. Mm. So I, I like things with that sort of pace that you know, suck me in. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm, Halloween as an adult. Don't celebrate it simply because I mean, I, we celebrate it. We decorate the house and, but uh, you know, my youngest son is 15. Now he's at that age where trick or treating is no longer cool, mm-hmm. but he's a good kid. So he's not out tricking either. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, you know, we don't have trick or treaters show up because we live in such a rural area. So it's, it's kind of sad. We put up the decorations and and we go through the motions, but it it, it feels like an empty holiday here. It's not like Christmas where, you know, you have the family all gathered together. Um, It's sort of a bummer. And and plus Halloween is really a working holiday for us. You know, Mary and I, we both, we're both writers. We both work in horror. Uh, Usually that's our busiest time of year. It's, It's when, you know, we're getting, doing the most signings, the most conventions, etc. So there's True. just not a lot of time to properly celebrate it. Almost makes it more occupational. Yeah. 
I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Can somewhat relate. <laughs> uh, do you remember the last person you hurt? Yeah, I do. But we're not going to talk about that one on the air. Okay. Okay. That's do you remember best. the last person you helped? Yeah. Um, you know, I like I said, we we talked about the the charity I'm involved with, Scares the mm-hmm. Care. It's composed of horror professionals and horror fans. Every year, we pick a child suffering from a disease like cancer. Uh, We pick a woman battling breast cancer and we pick a burn victim and we raise a minimum of $10,000 for each of them. And then we always have money left over. So, you know, we're trying to expand the mission to help more people. You know, if, if there's a horror professional in trouble, for example, author Laird Barron was in serious trouble last year. You know, uh, author Elizabeth Massey was fighting cancer. We, we, you know, we, we help folks like that out as well. So that's, that's a weekly thing, checking in with the group. And, and as far as helping somebody, yeah, I help author Wesley Southerd yesterday. He's, he's an author in his thirties. He's, he's great. He's been reading me since high school. I, I first signed books for him in college and when he was in college and he told me he wanted to be a writer and now he's doing it. Um, but he had a, a moment of doubt, a crisis of faith <laughs> yesterday, and, and he called his mentor, and I talked him through it the same way Joe Lansdale or Paul Wilson or Dave Scow or any of the other people we've mentioned have talked me through it when I was at that stage. And that's really what it's all about. I, you know, as both a fan of horror and as somebody who makes his living in this genre. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny here. Horror, horror has made me happy my entire life. You, you asked when, when were my moments of peace? It was when I could retreat into that genre. And as an adult to be able to give back to that genre and maybe give that escapism or that peace to other people. I mean, it's the best, best feeling in the world. It's the best job in the world. But as somebody who's doing that job, you know, every, every single person I mentioned from Stephen King and Steve Gerber to Skip Inspector and, and Scal, every one of them has helped me in my professional career. So it's doubly awesome to be able to help people like Wesley Southard. And, and, you know, the hope is 10, 20 years from now, he's doing it for somebody else, you know, right. It's a, it's a beautiful circle. Agreed. Uh, we haven't really talked about too much on the podcast. I think it's come up once, maybe twice before, but um, I know I've talked to you about this about at StokerCon and a couple of our other previous guests. But for the listeners, actually, what we're planning on doing for our, we were debating on whether or not to do this for our fourth anniversary or fifth. I think we're going to push it out to our fifth just so we can get more autographs. But um, we had a, a t-shirt made up with the Horror Makes Us Happy logo, and we're trying to get as many of our previous guests to sign this uh, as we can. And then we're going to donate that to Scares the Care so that they can auction it off for their charity. And that's awesome. Yes. But I uh, thought I would put that out there because- it, you know, coming up towards the fifth anniversary, we'll be talking about that more and trying to get the word out there so that, you know, people who are interested in getting these autographs on one particular item, uh, <clears throat> hopefully we'll bid on this and raise some money for charity. And we, we appreciate that. And I'll tell you that that's one of the, the things I enjoy most about being involved with scares that carry. It's seeing how other horror professionals support the charity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 
Kane Hodder, who played Jason in some of the Friday the 13th films, or Sid Haig, who's no longer with us, they would they would bend over backwards for this charity. Um, you know, Jonathan Jans, the writer, <laughs> he he goes above and beyond for this charity. You know, and he's not a he's not a member of the charity, he's not on the board. He just he he does things and, and things like this with the t-shirt, you know, it's it it means a lot and it matters. And it's neat to see the community come together for stuff like that, particularly these days when on social media it, it seems like there's nothing but infighting in the community. Mm. It's it's neat to see it everybody coalesce and come back together for things like that. I think a lot of people probably do want to try to help, but don't know how. And it's kind of funny even saying that because you mentioned Jonathan Jans. I had never even heard of scares of care until Jonathan had posted on his social media about the award that he got from them. Yeah. There and you go. There were a couple other things going on in my head around the same time. And it just so happened that the ideas kind of all gelled together. And I realized, Holy shit, this is something that we could do, but nobody had told me I could do that, you know, like, yeah. or we could do that. So it, like I say, I think there are a lot of people out there who want to help, but don't know how. And it's, it's sometimes a challenge of trying to find a creative way to say, well, what can I do? What can we do? I mean, can I, can I plug it? Sure. Um, I mean, the easiest thing to do, go to scaresthecare.org and you can, you can make a donation, you know, five bucks. And that goes towards the families we're helping this year. But beyond that, you know, we, the charity has been around 16 years. We do at least one convention every year. hundred percent of the proceeds go to our families. Next year, we're actually doing two. We're doing, uh, we're doing one in Williamsburg, Virginia, and we're doing one in St. Louis, Missouri. But we do all kinds of other things too. We do charity auctions. We do Facebook donation days. Uh, we do Christmas parties, dances. We used to do back when I, when I had the horror show with Brian Keene podcast, we used to do a, a 24 hour live telethon. Oh, nice. Um, you know, and those were great. We, one year we did $30,000 in, oh, wow. in 24 hours. You know, I slept for seven days after that. But. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, the, but yeah, the easiest thing to do, just go to scaresofcare.org. And, you know, if, if you don't have the means to make a donation, that's okay. You, you can go there and, find out how to share our mission and tell others about our mission. And you can see events we do have coming up and things like that. Cool. Cool. Uh, we're also going to put together a bio page for you and we can link to that from the bio page as well. Cool. Cool. Uh, something you said earlier reminded me of a question that I had forgotten asking in the childhood section. And that is, you know, some of our guests have reported that there was sort of a dividing line where prior to that line, they were actually afraid of horror and then something happened and then it, be, it became a more positive experience or a pleasurable one. Was there a dividing line for you or was it always? I never, never had it. I, I enjoyed it from, from day one. Okay. Uh, the first monster, I was six years old and the first monster was the man thing, Marvel <laughs> comics. And right after him came uh, Frankenstein, the old black and white Frankenstein. Morris Karloff. And uh, that was it for me. I just, I loved them immediately. And hmm. so there was never a dividing line. Cool. Uh, the reason that I wanted to ask that is because sometimes, you know, that might highlight something interesting. And in your case, it sounds like, you know, I, I've had a conversation uh, on our discord server with one of our, our followers that, you know, there's, I guess, two ways of looking at psychology and one is from a trauma-based perspective and the other one is from more of a joy-based joy perspective. 
and it's kind of interesting in your case. Well, you know what? Actually, let me push that off for a little bit, and we'll we'll come back to that a little more because um, there are a couple other questions I could ask you well, right now. But mm-hmm. I want to I want to touch on this because now you sure. got my brain thinking. Okay. Have you ever had a guest who said they had a dividing line later in life? Ooh, me. Uh, me too. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Me too. Steve has never really been a fan of comics. Of, of <laughs> or uh, you were definitely a fan of comics. I yes. had a I had a moment. This is this was oh my. This must have been uh, almost a decade ago because JF Gonzalez was still alive. But JF and I were in the car, and film director Mike Lombardo was in the back seat, and. You know, Mike is in his mid thirties now, so he must have been in his twenties then. And he's telling us about this brand new movie he just saw called a Serbian film. <laughs> and I'm not gonna tell the plot to your mm-hmm. your listeners, but basically it involves if you know you know. Yeah, it involves very, very terrible things happening to children. And, very early in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Mike is first scene. You know, Mike's explaining this to us and he's raving about just how over the top and and you know visceral and mean this movie was and jesus and i are looking in the back seat like he's lost his fucking mind (laughs) and it occurred to me during that drive you know jesus and i are older and we're both parents now we don't want that imagery in our heads and yet Mm -hmm. jesus is the guy that that wrote survivor and of course i'd done bad things to children in books 10 years before that so becoming parents there was a new dividing line that didn't mm. exist before. If we had been Mike's age, yeah, we would have probably been all over a Serbian film. But at that stage in our life, we knew we didn't need to see it ever mm. and never have. Okay. We have actually had that on the show a couple of times. Yeah. I thought you were talking about like a, the opposite, like a, an interest in horror later on in life. But yeah, yeah. definitely a couple of parents have, uh, have expressed that. Yeah. Once you have a child, it's it changes yeah. things. You cannot watch a child get hurt or killed yep. or just yeah get hurt in general. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the same as Chris. I, for me, I've never considered myself a horror fan, but there have been things in my adult life that after having gone through my counseling and 12 step and that kind of journey in, in recovery that I have identified certain things in certain genres that do speak to me. Um, but that didn't come until I was probably in my late twenties, early thirties. Right. So the next couple of questions I want to ask, this is sort of where we start getting into the the wrap up and, and covering your entire life. Okay. And the next two questions are not just about horror. So this could be anything. Uh, and I'll give you the same, the, the two questions at the same time, because it could be two different answers or the same answer. And those questions are what movie have you watched more times than any other? And then favorite movie more times than any other uh, John Carpenter's the thing. Okay. Um, and it is. My favorite horror movie switches between The Thing and The Exorcist Three, but ah. but today the the Thing is is my favorite. Um, <laughs> no I, one ever likes The Exorcist Two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> With good it's like, reason. Yeah, one, three. You know there was a second. No, there wasn't. Nope. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, Mary and I. Of course, Mary and I. We were we were peers and friends in this business long, long, long before we ever started dating or ever got married. I mean, we were friends for. A good 20 years mm-hmm. but we bonded very early on over the exorcist three and the thing um and married life with us a glimpse in our married life we'll quote lines from both movies at each other throughout the day uh, you know we know them by heart and yet we still see how <laughs> yeah to i imagine them. uh you gotta be fucking kidding me gets a lot of use right <laughs> it's a lot of use <laughs> 
you know, if one of us doesn't hear the other and we say, I'm sorry, what did you say? Uh, I'm signaling beings on Mars. Sometimes they <laughs> answer. <yeah. laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing. Uh, let's see. So uh, favorite scenes that might, well, I, I guess you just mentioned, you know, the whole thing. So it might be hard to pick out a particular scene, but in either one of those movies, is there a particular scene that jumps out to you? I mean, I, as I always tell people, uh, if you want one of the original OG jump scares, there's a scene in Exorcist 3. Again, I'm not going to spoil it for your listeners, but it's the, know it's the hospital place. hallway scene. Yep, yep. Uh, and the camera work is so great because you, you, you're about to fast forward. Uh, you're like, mm-hmm. what the hell is this long out, long ass, boring, drawn out scene? And then bam, they get you. And in the in the thing, it's it's always going to be where the guy's head tears itself off his body, grows legs, and runs away. It's just, I just practical top three right there yeah. like of all time. Yeah. 2025, 20, 2055, we'll still be talking about that scene as one of the best scenes <laughs> yep. in practical effects. Yep. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Carpenter fan, and, you know, John's a, a super great guy. And I have many favorites, you know, Escape from New York, They Live, which curiously is my 15-year-old's favorite film, They Live. It's rather topical currently. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. But uh, the thing, just for the the practical effects, and as we said earlier when, in talking about Evil Dead 2, there's there's some humor in the thing that yeah. I, I don't think people touch on enough. You know? Yeah. You've got to be fucking kidding me! It's all uh-huh. <laughs> when the uh, when the chess computer cheats on me, yep. <laughs> pours his fucking J and W into it. <laughs> Cheating bitch. <laughs> I think both of those uh, things, the Evil Dead two and this uh, head tearing itself off, kind of align itself with the David Lee Roth portion of those oh, three. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> over the top and <laughs> funny. Yeah. When you were talking about that, the first thing that came to mind was uh, Hot for Teacher, the video. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'd be not to get off on a whole tangent. Cause I know you guys you got limited time here, but I, I, that has not aged. Well, I, I showed it to my 15 year old. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah that, he looked at me like really dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the stripper in front of the kids. <laughs> Little icy. <laughs> The 80s were simpler times. Yeah, it was a different time. Well, I mean, well, I think it's also like if you were a kid today at the age of those kids, you know, I think most of the, at least most of those kids probably were too young to really understand what was funny about the video. Right. And your son being 15 is now getting into that part where he does understand. It's like, mm. yep. <laughs> yep. Would you show that to a four-year-old? They're like, whatever. <laughs> True. So do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Cannibalism, occult, metaphysical, supernatural? What kind I like or what kind I create? Ooh, both. Both. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we can both. expand that. Question, um, <laughs> I mean, what kind I like, I think is just as long as I'm entertained. Okay. Um, as long as it's not boring me, as long as I'm not, on page 50 or half an hour into the movie. And I'm yelling for God's sake, somebody throw a pie or something, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's easy. I just, I want to be entertained. I want to be moved. I want to have an emotional reaction. It it doesn't have to be a a happy reaction, but I want to have some kind of reaction as far as a creator. 
Um, I have always created from a fan's perspective. My very first novel, The Rising, was a zombie novel. And the reason I wrote a zombie novel is because nobody else was doing zombie novels. You know, we the last one to have come out was Philip Nutman's wet work and there was nothing. And I thought, well, I'm going to write the, the kind of novel I, that I want to read. And I have always approached everything I've done from that perspective. What would I want to read? What would, what would make me entertained? But I also recognize there's a, a deeper underlying subtext with my stuff. And again, I'm not tooting my horn because critics and reviewers have pointed this out too. You know, I was I was raised on we mentioned earlier early in the show, you know, Stephen King's stuff was set in a small town that I recognized and a lot of horror before that was not. But I learned early on as a creator was how diverse my audience was in a lot of horror fiction at the time. Sure, it could be set in a small town, but the cast was predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Christians and and when I would go out and do book signings, that wasn't my audience at all. My audience was incredibly diverse. So very early on, I tried to represent them in what I was writing. And this was years before we had buzzwords like representation and things like that. Um, I just, I felt it was the thing to do because it was what attracted me to these books early on. And, you know, I, 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 I wanted, as a fan, I, I wanted to continue that experience for others. Um, so those are those are definitely the through lines that I see going through it. On on one level, whether I'm reading it or whether I'm writing it, it's got to be entertaining. Mm. But on another level, it has to be about real people because that's what evokes that emotional reaction in the reader or the viewer. Right. Yeah. So it helps you identify with it. Yeah, that. exactly. Any emotion, really. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not horror, but, you know, I always point to The Sopranos. We, we should loathe, actively loathe Tony Soprano. He is not a good guy. You know, he, he does some heinous shit throughout that series, and yet we love him, and we find ourselves rooting for him. That's because the writers have created this empathy for the character. You, you can identify with parts of him. If if you're doing Friday the 13th and you just have Jason carving up surplus teenagers, that gets boring. Uh, if you give a shit about those teenagers before Jason starts carving them up, it's much more entertaining and it's it's much more likely to stick, you know? So Character development is important. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's the through line for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so this is the point where I would point out whatever common themes that, you know, seem to be coming up and then we can talk about those. Yeah. Let's hear your take. <laughs> yes. Um, well, really three things, but I think two of them subsume under one of them and the two are guilt and thrill. And then that what they subsume under would be identification. You talked a lot, a lot even just a couple minutes ago about identifying with characters in the things that you've read as, as well as the things that you write. There's an underlying through line of guilt uh, going all the way back to childhood, but also thrill. You know, you talked about being a bit of a hellion. And I guess, I mean, the next question would be, why is it that those things are important to you? 
think thrill, and this is where I was talking a moment ago about the difference between a trauma-based perspective versus a joy-based perspective and how I think it's kind of interesting because it seems like you've got one of each, the guilt and the thrill. Guilt might be trauma-based and then thrill might be joy-based, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Steve, all the money I spent on talk therapy a few years ago, <laughs> I could have just talked to you instead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's trauma-based from childhood, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of guilt there. Um, we touched on it earlier. I, you know, when I, and just, I don't want to interrupt you, but quickly, let me say, when I say trauma-based, I don't necessarily mean that something bad happened to you, but like I give you an example, quick example. There was something that I read without talking about what it is. There's just something that I read or maybe saw on TV that like hit me in a really deeply emotional spot that has affected me for the rest of my life. Right. And it's, it's not necessarily like, something bad happened to me, but there can be something that's for lack of a better word, traumatic that, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I, go ahead and I say mean, no, I, I guess, I guess there was, and you know, that was the, that was the David Lee Roth, Han Solo and me earlier trying to give you the entertaining answer. But mm. you know, the fact is two of my childhood friends were being abused at home. Mm. And you know, I, I said my parents were great and my parents were great. But I also touched on my dad had some pretty bad PTSD from Vietnam, and he did. Uh, and my first eight or nine years were not pleasant as a result of that. Mm. So that wanting to get attention, wanting people to like me, and then once I got their attention, wanting to keep their attention, it, it probably all stems from that. And that ties in exactly with what you just said. Uh, and then the the things that I would do to get their attention, I would sometimes feel guilty about because <laughs> I went too far. Chris, <laughs> and there are there there are some critics who would say that holds true with my novels. <laughs> I don't know if you heard it, but I just threw threw a line at Chris. I was like, Chris. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Your turn, Chris. (laughs) I've never heard anything like that ever before in my life. (laughs) No, it obviously makes a lot of sense once you add some of that additional context. Um, So thank you for adding that. Yeah. Uh, um, So next question. Now that we've identified why some of these things are important to you, why horror? Because aren't there other genres that can touch on some of these things? And I think, again, this kind of is interesting dividing line between the the guilt stuff and the thrill stuff, because yes, there are other genres that touch on the thrill stuff, maybe not so much the guilt stuff. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that horror, for the most part, is more clear cut. There's good and there's evil. You know, now sure there there can be shades of gray and horror, just as there can in any other genre. But at the end of the day, horror, in, in its purest form, is still about good versus evil, light versus dark. You know, some of your other genres, it's not that always that clear cut. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that probably goes back to those those early comic books. You know, where where it was the mm-hmm. same thing, good versus evil. Yeah. Of course, real life doesn't work that way, but that's why we so escape into horror. Exactly. That's the idea. Yeah. It's, it's an escape. And that's it's not real life. And it's personal preference, too. I mean, it, there are other people who seek out the gray, you know, and if it, you particularly preferring the, the clear cut, that's, like I said, just a personal preference, which is fine. Right. I mean, not to, not to go on a, a political tangent, and I certainly don't want to offend any listeners or you guys, but, you know, I... I I was actually talking about this with one of my sons the other day. 
you can actively think that Donald Trump is a monster. I personally think Donald Trump is a monster. Um, and you can actively dislike a number of his followers, but you can't just automatically assume that every single person who voted for Donald Trump is an evil person because that's, you know, that's not factually true. And this is what I was trying to explain to my kid, but in horror fiction, they can all be zombies, you know, and then then it's easier to feel that way. Um, Mm. But, you know, in real life, of course, there are shades of gray. Yeah. Yeah. Not just horror, but I think all, all media, uh, it's not only that you can simplify, but in a lot of ways, sometimes you have to simplify because if you don't, then, you know, trying to get into too many levels of nuance, just you go way past Stephen King le- levels of verbosity. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, that's when you start getting into like uh, being a historian and having, you know, a 13, not a 13 volume set of, <laughs> you know, or Dan Simmons drew in the terror. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have read those, but those, those things make the stand seem like a, a novella. <laughs> I They're great not. books, but they they take a while to read. Or Jerusalem by Alan Moore. Uh, that That's the longest novel you'll ever read. Great novel, but you'll only read it once because <laughs> we have a limited amount of time here on yes, the planet. Exactly. <laughs> so last question, is there anything that you've thought of that might be relevant but hasn't come up on the call? Maybe an idea popped ahead and then we took a left turn? No, I think, I think we covered it in all the left turns that we took. Mm. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. Like I say, we'll uh, we'll get together. We'll put together a bio for you. Um, I'll get together offline and also get like pictures that we can put together excerpts and put them up on TikTok and Instagram and all that kind of fun stuff. Absolutely. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Our pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to anybody out there listening. Please do come visit us at HorrorMakesUsHappy.com. Support us on Patreon. Tell a friend. All that kind of fun stuff. And thank you very much. <laughs>